Our loving Father, thank you so much that you speak by your spirit through your word. And we ask that as Paul considered how to bring the gospel to Athens, you'd help us to consider how to bring the gospel to Australia. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how religious is Australia? Uh, This is a question that's been discussed this week in the mainstream media as the ABC has released and analysed results of its Australia Talks project. Now, as I read the article during the week, I wasn't really that surprised. Um, In some ways, we're more religious than people realise. I mean, the most recent census said that, that still more than half of Australians say that they are Christians... And as, I, as the Labor Party licks its wounds after the recent federal collapse, uh, I think they and others have also realised that probably the, there are Christians out there who do care about what people say about things that matter to them. But in other ways, we're just as unreligious as many people would expect. Because even though there are many people who hold this religious viewpoint, uh, it seems we're pretty shy about bringing up faith matters in public. Uh, And so writing this week for the ABC, uh, Annabel Crabb said that 60% of Australians would prefer that people kept their religious views to themselves. And what's more, over half of the religious people agreed that religion should be, quote, a hush-hush affair. But most interesting, but probably not surprising, is the fact that Aussie's personal identity is not influenced by our religion. And so Crabbe said, and I quote, when given a list of eight attributes and asked which was most central to the respondent's idea of self and identity, Australians placed religion stone cold motherless last. End quote. List all these different things that will shape you and give you a sense of identity and Aussies say the very last one is religion. And what's more, she said that only 15% of respondents thought that the country would be better off if more people were religious. And to top it off, one of the survey's most striking findings, she said, is the poor esteem in which religious leaders are held. (laughs) She said, trust in religious leaders may be a thing of the past. Nearly half of those aged over 75 felt it, but only 23% of those aged 25 to 29 Now, this was a survey by people who opted into an ABC survey, and uh, it surveyed 54,000 people, which is a lot of people. Uh, Maybe just give me a bit of a... Put your hand in the air if you did this survey. One. We had one last night and one this morning. So it's not indicative of all of Jamboree, for example, but 54,000 is still a fair number of people. What does this all mean? Well, I think it says that most Aussies don't think that religion matters. Would you agree? Most Aussies don't think that religion matters, the majority, which is not really surprising, but it's not really that encouraging. Because we in this room, I take it, are amongst the 15% who think that it would be really good if if people were more religious, although specifically that that more people would know the Lord Jesus and not just be churchgoers, so to speak. We want more people to personally know Jesus Christ, so how do we do that? How do we, under God, grow the number of Jesus-loving, personally-believing Christians. It's it's a real issue that we face. And it's the same issue that the Apostle Paul faced as he went down to Athens. 
He'd just been literally beaten up in Thessalonica and Philippi and other places, and he was down in Athens waiting for his mates to come down there with him. And as he's there, we read in verse 16 of chapter 17 that he was waiting for them in Athens. He was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. Athens would have been an amazing place back then as it is today with the Parthenon, the Acropolis and all that sort of wow. And you'd think you'd go around and say, this is really lovely. You've got all these lovely little religions here and there. You can take your pick. It's like a big smorgasbord at a huge buffet restaurant. You know, you can have a bit of this and a bit of that. And everyone's full to their tummies with, with religion and stuff. But instead, he said, he is deeply troubled, sick to the stomach, He's deeply troubled in particular at their idolatry, their idolatry. Now, sometimes I wonder if it's good to have such a strong, adverse reaction to people's idolatry. Uh, if, if you feel sickened when people don't love Jesus, then you think, well, I might find it hard to go and engage with the world. Or on the other hand, I think we can sometimes be so laissez-faire, like, oh, well, you know, each to his own, that we don't personally find any offence when someone hates Jesus and when someone swears about Jesus or someone says things about Jesus that would, that would cause us, that should cause us great despair. The thing about this is Paul is deeply troubled at their idolatry and the reason is that idolatry robs God of his glory. It's a good thing to be troubled by idolatry. Uh, it's, this word here, deeply troubled, is used also in the Greek version of the Old Testament to describe God's feelings towards idolatry. And so when in a great moment of stupidity, God's people got together and said, we reckon God would like it if we got all our jewellery, melted it down and turned it into a giant, big, golden calf, uh, God looked at them and was deeply troubled. It's this same word. Paul was deeply troubled at the idolatry. God was deeply troubled at the idolatry. And he was deeply, deeply troubled because there were idols absolutely everywhere. In fact, it was said by one ancient writer that in Athens it was easier to find a god there than a man. They were everywhere. And this is why he was so deeply troubled, a tragedy that broke his heart. Idolatry breaks God's heart because he is right to feel jealous when our worship doesn't go to the creator who made us and loves us, but in fact goes to an idol that we've made with our own hands. And Paul, his heart was broken as well as he saw all of this. And I take it that what idolatry should do for us is it should stir us up for mission. If you yourself are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and you see that there are lots of people around who are worshipping blocks of wood or nice new cars or shoes or holidays or, whatever, or new homes or whatevers, then you should feel in your heart a deep sense of trouble and so that you will then teach them about Jesus so that they can have the same salvation that you have and the assurance that you have in Christ. And that's what Paul did. We read in verse 17 that he, he went about his strategy. And uh, can you remember exactly what that strategy was? Remember he last one? First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Well, we'll do it one more time. So you heard a practice. First for the Jew, then for the Verse 17, he went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles that were there. And he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. 
went to the Jews, said, guess what? The Messiah you're waiting for, his name is Jesus. Let me tell you about him. But then he went out to the the, the public square we read here. Other translations will, will render the word a bit more uh, accurately in a sense, but it's still the same thing. It's the agora. It's the, it's the marketplace. He wanted to go out into the world, not just into sort of the, the religious part, which is the, the synagogue. It's kind of like in the churches. He wanted to get out in the open spaces and talk to them about Jesus. I mean, where's the marketplace today? Well, in a sense, it's down at the front of Freddo's here in Jamboree, or maybe at the Kaima shops outside Baker's Delight there where the door is to Woolies. Uh, that's the marketplace there. But really, the marketplace is anywhere that people gather. It's anywhere. It might be at the crossing outside the school or at the bar at the bolo or when you're selling jams for Red Cross or debriefing after a fire call with the RFS or winding it down after touch footy or whatever it is, you fill in the blanks. But one of the places that often tends to be is social media. People seem to have a, uh, a candor when they're sitting down there as their keyboard warriors, um, able to share very deeply and somewhat aggressively about what they believe. And, and it's a place where you can kick around these ideas. Uh, it seems that that's a place where people want to talk about these big ideas. That's one of the reasons I write a little 300-word blurb each week for our news sheet and then post it on Facebook uh, so that you might be able to share it with your friends and get people talking about it. Uh, sometimes it uh, will, will be a bit more provocative than other times, but generally I want it to be out there so people can be talking about the stuff that we have in our church to break it outside from there. So on a Friday morning at 5.01am, you should get an email automatically scooped up by our website, fancy stuff. But I, uh, if I remember over breakfast, I'll share it on Facebook. You might share it with your friends and say, um, oh, I was thinking of you, here's something that I've read. Or isn't it great to know that God answers our prayers, especially even when we pray like a child? Or something like that. Get it out there. Get people talking about it and be happy, uh, be loud and proud about the, your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we do this, um, it can sometimes help if we have a bit of a concerted effort. Next year, we're going to have another Jesus is mission. Um, we've still got the little piece of paper out there. We've, I've got a sticker on the back of my car. We're going to get T-shirts and wristbands and, and coffee mugs and banners and signs and all sorts of stuff. And we want people to be talking about who Jesus is. And we'll have training and all sorts of things to help us do that in the four weeks leading up to Easter and then the big Easter weekend will be when it all happens. I'm excited about that. We've got training events and things happening next year. But as we do this, it sometimes helps to know exactly what it is that the world thinks, how it is that the world, what the world believes and so forth. And we read here in the Bible that there were two different types of philosophers that Paul had some debating with. And so in verse 17, verse 18 of chapter 17, we read that he had a debate also with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. He tailored his message to his audience, Paul did. He knew what they were like. He read the audience so that he could speak intelligently to them. It's a really good model. In fact, Acts chapter 17 is often used as a, as a talking point when people come together and say, how do we engage with the gospel with our world? Uh, what do the Epicureans believe? They basically believe that the gods were so distant and uninvolved that we should act like they don't even exist. And what's more, they don't exist. You can't know them. They don't care. So just eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Uh, they were pleasure seekers. Uh, anything good that happened was good luck. Anything bad that happened was bad luck. 
And so, well, shrug your shoulders and pour yourself another drink. Uh, that's kind of the way that the Epicureans lived. And I've got to say that it sounds like the Aussies. We're all on about luck. You know, how are things going? Oh, I'm, you know, luck's going my way at the moment. Or oh, I've gone through a patch of bad luck. Oh, and so what are you up to? Oh, I don't know. Well, we're just planning for our next holiday. Or we're, you know, we're going down to the shops. Or, you know what I mean? It's kind of like, I think this is a bit, I think we Aussies are Epicureans in that sense. Because in a sense, the pursuit of pleasure is the dominant Aussie religion. We love pleasure. We love fun. We are fun-loving Aussies. We're not Jesus-loving Aussies. We're fun-loving Aussies. We are Epicureans in that sense. But the other group, they were the Stoics. When we think of someone who is Stoic or is showing Stoicism, we often use the phrase a stiff upper lip. It's like, well, all these things are happening and I'm a, uh, these things are happening to us. We're sort of like standing up there on the front of a ship and the ship's going down, but we'll stand to a salute and we'll go all the way down with the ship and we'll be Stoic. Uh, that is a little bit of a summary of what the Stoics believed. They, they had a bit of a put-up-with-all-the-mess kind of outlook. They were fatalists. It's like, this is coming to me. We just need to submit to the forces of nature and the world. They were Stoics in that sense. And I think there's a bit of Stoicism in the Aussie mind as well. Uh, Perhaps not as much as the Epicurean, but I think it shows itself as the maybe the victim mentality as an Aussie attitude. It's kind of like, well, it's happened to us. We've got to put up with it. Don't let it get to you. And I think the Aussie... I mean, even yesterday, as some people were responding to, to the horrific fire tragedy, I, was, I heard someone saying, you know, well, the problem is all this stuff's happened to us. Uh... Scott Morrison should be sending in the army or we should be training up every single person who's 18 to be in the RFS and forcing them to go up. And Scott Morrison, where are you? Where are you? It's like, I don't think Scott lit the fires, but it was already that victim mentality that there would be some sense where we, we as Aussies from time to time will say, these things are happening to us. We're victims. We need to blame or whatever. I don't know. Maybe I've misread that. I don't know. But you see, what I'm trying to do is, with the Apostle Paul, try and engage with our society and then think, what is going on around the place so that we can bring the message of Jesus to them? But, you know, even as we do that, I reckon we will sometimes fall into the old way of thinking as we live in our world. You know, when things get too much, we sometimes revert to the Aussie religion. You know, things are tough and so, well... It's hard or it's weird, so just pour yourself another drink, binge on Netflix, or go to do some retail therapy, you know. Or, you know, when things are really tough and you're powerless, you just say, ah, oh, yeah, whatever. Blame someone else. Blame, blame anyone, anything. Blame the forces. Blame bad luck. But the biggest issue with all of this is that it is not relating to the personal God. And the ancient philosophers couldn't know God because they said he's out there, he's beyond us. If he does exist, he made it, and he's left us for dead. They can't enjoy any of the benefits from knowing God. So what did Paul say to them? Well, we read in 18, the second half, that when he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Another said he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. He went straight for the resurrection. Did you notice that? He said, if I'm going to really hit these guys right between the eyes with the faith that will save them, 
then it's going to be about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's not going to be Jesus walked around the earth and said nice things. It's going to be he rose from the dead. Let me show you this controversial miracle. Because Paul, and we should too, believe that the resurrection changes everything, changes the lot. When you believe in the resurrection of the dead, it means that something supernatural has happened and it affects every single human being in one way or the other. But what did they respond? How did they respond to him teaching about this? Did they do what the Philippians and the others did and try and lock him up in prison and shut him down? Well, no. These Athenians wanted to find out more about his fresh ideas. And so 19 and 20, we read that they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You are saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. Ha, there you go. They weren't saying, no, just flog him and throw him in prison. It's like, no, tell us about these fancy new ideas. So they took him to this place. Here in our Bibles it says the High Council of the City. Uh, Other versions will use the actual name, which is Areopagus, which can be translated as Mars Hill. So it's this place where they came together. used to be the High Court equivalent for Athens, but now it was the place where they'd come together and they'd sort of dissect and consider views related to religion and ethics and morals and so forth. And that's why they said, hey, we've got something new, genuinely new to put into the mix. Let's get Paul up here and get him to share with this big hothouse of beliefs. And so they do. They bring Paul to this place. And I think part of their attraction was because they loved new things. Verse 21 says, It should be explained that all the Athenians as well as the foreigners in Athens seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. (laughs) Uh, We all know someone like that. Uh, You might be one of those people. Uh, What's new? Oh, we've found out a new way to do this or a new way to do that. Apparently you you can split garlic this new way. Wow, I saw it on Facebook. It's like, wow, that's so new. That's so wow. Uh, Sounds like a compliment, and in a sense it is. But he's used it as a way to say, listen, you want new stuff. You, you are the kind of people who like to get into new stuff. Well, I want to give you a bit of a new take on something old. And he says, verse 23, for, uh, because they have a fascination with new ideas, we have a fascination with new ideas. And with that, he locks into their philosophy, saying, verse 22, standing before the council, he addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. All right, that's true. And why does that matter? Well, verse 23, For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it, To an unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. Now, Paul has seen shrines and altars Everywhere, overwhelmingly religious stuff, just everywhere the eye can see. And as he's been looking around, he saw this one that's a bit of a wild card. You know, it's like you're playing a card game and you you can have a card that can mean anything. It's kind of like a handy one to have up your sleeve. Not literally, unless you're cheating. But he's gone along and he's seen this altar and it says, To an unknown God. He's thought, ah, this is a point of connection I can have with these deeply religious people. They've got everything out there for all these different possibilities and he now connects with their worldview. He works within their religious framework. It's very clever. He doesn't go out there and say, it's all rubbish. Let me tell you about Jesus. 
He actually says, well, listen, you've already actually discerned that there's something more out there that you can't put your finger on it. Well, the good news is I can now tell you what that is and who that is and how it works. He is working within their religious framework. And here's how he begins. So take note of his strategy, what he says. He starts off in verse 24a saying, He is the God who made the world and everything in it. He starts with creation. It's a really smart move. A lot of the things we say about sin and judgment and heaven and hell and God and all of this stuff comes back to the fact that God created us. And that's exactly where Paul begins here. What we have is not the result of chance. See, atheistic evolution is completely wrong. It's not that there's nothing out there and it just happened from nowhere. God has handcrafted everything. Life has its origins in the deliberate, planned creation by God. And he created everything, handcrafting it, and because of that, it gives him a special authority. We read that, 24, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. Uh, They kind of want to domesticate God. And I understand why people do that. When we see something wild... We want to be able to make it tame. We kind of want to head down to the snowy river highlands and and go down near the high country and and grab a brumby and stick a bit in its mouth and ride it like a thoroughbred and domesticate it. We want to do that with God, and that's what they wanted to do there. And he's saying, listen, really? (laughs) You can't stick him in a man-made temple. He's beyond anything that any human could try and control. And what's more, verse 25, human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. I reckon we often think that we're doing God a favour by coming to church. It's like, oh, thank you so much, Jamboree people, that you've come to church on a Sunday or whatever it is, because I I wouldn't be able to cope without you. (laughs) I don't think we really think that. But the point is, we don't... God doesn't need anything from us. He's the source of everything. And I reckon that sort of puts us in our place, in a sense. We want to sort of say, well, God, you must be so lucky that that I'm one of your followers because, you know, I really make the world a better place. (laughs) It's a bit silly, isn't it? Yes, it is. God doesn't need us to serve him because he, he has... A need for us. You know, he, he doesn't have any needs. I mean, God is the hardest person to buy a Christmas present for. He's got everything. Everything. You can't get a thing for him. You can't offer a thing for him that, will, that, will, that he needs. It's not needed. And when it comes to his creation, there's more to this, though. As verse 26, we read that from one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. He says, I made Adam, and then from Adam and Adam and Eve came all of the nations, and these particular nations will rise and fall because I say so. This particular nation is really big at the moment because I say so. This nation is really small at the moment because I say so. And that'll get bigger and smaller and smaller and bigger because I say so. God is in create, God has created everything and he is the one who rules. He determines the boundaries of all of the nations. Uh, this is humbling. Uh, you want to see how God works in the world? Go and get an old 
atlas and turn to the political maps and see how all of the colours and the boundaries have moved around. This is what happens. Go back a 1,000 years. Go back 2,000 years. There are countries that exist that we don't even know their names anymore. This is what God has done in this world. But there's a purpose. Verse 27. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. God made all people so we would know him. That's why he made us, so that we would know him. Uh, These philosophers say that he's unknowable, he's unobtainable, he's so far out there that we can't get anywhere near him. And Paul says, no, he's right here. You can know him by the Holy Spirit when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ. He undermines what they're thinking. And he does that even by quoting their pagan philosophers. It's really, really clever. In the next verse, he quotes two different pagan philosophers in the Bible. We read, For in him we live and move and exist. That's one quote. As some of your poets have said, we are his offspring, which is another quote. Uh, The first quote is from 6th century poet uh, Epimenides, and the second quote is from 3rd century Stoic Aratus. I'm not telling you that because I just happen to be reading them all the time and I notice the connections. Uh, No, I just read someone smart who was able to point those things out to me. But it's clever, isn't it, that he was quoting what they believe and what they read and what these philosophers had noticed about the world. Uh, It's a timely reminder that the world we have is knowable, is understandable. Even atheists can understand and discover things about creation. Uh, I'm happy to go along to a doctor who doesn't believe in Jesus. I'm happy to hear reports from scientists who are atheists. Because the world is created by our Lord Jesus Christ through his powerful word in such a way that it's ordered, that it makes sense, that you can poke it and prod it and learn stuff from it. And the same exists also to the social sciences and beyond, and even, to some extent, to philosophy. Although when you are an atheist philosopher, then in the end you really do miss the point. But the point of all this is that he wants to make sure that we realise that God is not distant. He is actually here and we can know him. Aussies need to hear this. It's not kind of like we've been given a holiday house and the owner's gone to another country and we can just trash the place and he won't ever care. That's how Aussies think of life. The reality is that The the landlord is in the back room, or he's actually right here in the room with us. And he wants you to have the greatest time you possibly can, now and forever. But reality is that he's right here. He's not far away. And that's why God rightly can get angry at us for creating idols. Verse 29, he says, Since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. It's just crazy to think that you would make out of a block of stone an image of God and bow down to it. You'd think that God would be very angry about that, rightly so. But for a little while he wasn't. Verse 30, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere 
to repent of their sins and turn to him. It's kind of like, you know, um, we've got a, a puppy dog and it not very good at toilet training. I'm like, I'll put up with it until it gets a bit older. And then it's kind of like, you've got to learn to do this thing, right? It's not that hard, surely. God, in before Jesus, it's a bit like, well, there are certain things I will overlook. This idolatry, you maybe just didn't have it all together. I can, I'm overlooking it to some extent. But ultimately, I will say, when Jesus comes along, there is no more excuses. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, verse 30, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. We are in that time now. We as a humanity have grown up enough to be able to know that you need to turn to Jesus, he's saying. He's spoken louder and clearer than ever before because Jesus has walked and talked and risen from the dead. And so now all people must repent and follow God. That's the bottom line. Everybody must do this. If you here today have not repented and followed God, then you need to do that. It's not something you can put off to another day. It's something you need to do with urgency. And it's not just kind of like something you can upgrade to and add on to your life, some sort of like, I'd like to have a, a more enhanced life. It's a matter of life and death. Because verse 31, we read that he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he's appointed, who's Jesus. And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. If you haven't yet come to Jesus, there will be a time when Jesus will, you'll stand before Jesus and he'll say, why did you not believe me when you heard me say these words in Jamboree Anglican back then? Because it's true. Jesus has risen from the dead. You know it. You can't walk away from it. You can't shrug your shoulders and say, another day. This is a real thing. Judgment is a real thing. And it's something to be genuinely scared about. Unless you're friends with Jesus. In which case, you need not fear. Because you know him. He is close to you. He is your friend. And because he's risen from the dead, you can have that confidence. Friends, Judgment Day is coming soon. And the evidence of this is seen in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's coming. We know it's coming. We've got to be ready. My little fire app keeps buzzing, saying to me, Tuesday is going to be horrible. Are you ready? Are you ready? My Facebook feed's full. Are you ready? Severe fire danger. Are you ready? We know it's coming. Are you ready? Have you cleaned your gutters? Blah, blah, blah. Someday soon, Jesus is coming back. Judgment Day is coming. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? You can be safe on that day if you know the Lord Jesus and are saved by believing in him. See, all of this is a wonderful message. And it all makes sense because of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection makes sense of everything. It's much better than the viewpoint that says that we're all, it's all about good luck, bad luck, that we're sort of like corks that are bobbing along in the ocean, battered by storms, open to the effects of nature. No, it's not about good luck, bad luck. It's about knowing God who is knowable and is here with us, Jesus Christ. How do you respond? Well, let me tell you how they responded in the last little bit here. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt. 
But others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them, but some joined him and became believers. And among them was Dionysius, a member of the council, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Some mocked with laughter. Most Aussies think that way of Christians. But others want to know more. I'm praying that there'll be more and more Aussies in that second situation. Because we know that as we know the Lord Jesus Christ, we are saved, we have hope, we have certainty for eternity. Because we believe that Aussies would be better off with Jesus. And we're praying that more and more people would know the Lord Jesus Christ and not just be battered around by good luck, bad luck, oh well, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. But a certain hope for the future that will save us for eternity. Let me pray. Gracious, loving, heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you give us this certain hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, prayer, heavenly Father, is that more people in Australia and throughout the world would know that Jesus is Lord that they would come to know the Lord Jesus and because of his resurrection from the dead, that they'd realise that judgment day is coming and that they can be safe on that day because of Jesus' death for them. Give us boldness to talk to people in the marketplace and we pray, Father, that there would be many people who would turn to the Lord Jesus and be saved. Even this weekend, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.